Welcome to the Scale Up Your Business podcast. In this podcast, we talk about what it takes to go from startup to scale up and beyond. How to significantly grow your business, create freedom, build wealth, and live life on your terms. Featuring some very special guests and experts to give you advice and direction on your journey. And now, introducing your host, entrepreneur, investor, and scale-up specialist, Nick Bradley. Hi, everyone. It's Nick, and welcome to Scale Up Your Business. So this week, I have another amazing guest for you. Joining me on the show today is Martin Babinick. Now, Martin is a very seasoned business professional, to say the least. He founded Trinet, which is a Silicon Valley-based company in 1988, and he served there as the CEO for 20 years. And he continues to be a large shareholder and a board director. Now, Trinet is a cloud-based HR services business. It covers 17,000-plus clients across the U.S. and Canada, generating over $4 billion in annual revenue and is listed on the New York Stock Exchange. But we're not really going to talk to Martin about that. I mean, we are going to touch on that experience, and he has got some fantastic insights about how he scaled that business to the heights of it being you know, generating over a billion dollars. But what we're going to talk about today is something a little bit different because Martin is also a prolific investor and he's passionate about the idea of how do these communities get formed, these hubs, if you will, where investors get together and then they obviously start to become a magnet for businesses. So obviously the, the most common one, the one that we talk about and we mentioned just a few minutes ago is Silicon Valley. But if you look in the US, there's places like Boulder, which are equally becoming these hubs. And what Martin has done is he's gone back to his hometown in rural upstate New York, and he's on a mission to help these communities really grow and develop by shaping how sort of startups can innovate in those areas. And he's founded and had active roles with a number of different sort of venture firms, including UpVentures Capital, uh, Start Fast Ventures, and a number of nonprofits, including Upstate Venture Connect, Entrepreneurs Across border, Borders, and Up Mobility Foundation. And it's worth also saying that he's the past recipient of the Silicon Valley Entrepreneur of the Year Award. And his book, which is called More Good Jobs, um, has been published in October 2020. So what I want to get into today and what we cover with Martin is, yeah, okay, what's it like to create such an amazing organization? But actually, it's more than that. It's what is the role and the responsibility of people who have done well in their careers in business in terms of giving back and supporting entrepreneurship now and in the future. And the reason that I wanted to have Martin on is because his perspective on this is actually quite unique. I haven't seen too many people talk about the importance of being an ambassador, a community leader and how entrepreneurship can make a big change in those areas. And now more than ever, as we go through COVID pandemic, huge changes in the world because of technology and disruption, perhaps it is these, these hubs, if you like, that need to be beacons, which can then start to change things. And one of my big, I suppose my mission really is, is the concept of entrepreneurship as a force for good. And what Martin's doing with his um, organization, uh, More Good Jobs, Dot org and the community is he's really trying to make a change 
to bring some of these things together to help drive that that way forward. So I hope you enjoy the conversation. Listen to the subtext. Listen to kind of where we go to on business, but you know, really connect with what you know the the biggest story is behind this. Because I think now more than ever, if you're an entrepreneur or you want to be an entrepreneur, we can make significant change in the world. We can make things rapidly improve in areas where they have stalled for some time. And I would go as far as saying that now more than ever is the time to be in this space, particularly if it's something that you have wanted to investigate or be in. And equally, if you have been an entrepreneur and you've had success, perhaps now is the time to give back. All right. So that's the show today. I hope you enjoy it. Please welcome to Scale Up Your Business, Martin Babinick. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Scale Up Your Business for another week. It is Nick Bradley here, and I have another amazing, interesting guest for you today. I'd like to welcome to the show Martin Babinek. I pronounced that right, Martin? Babinek, yes. Babinek, there we are. A little bit of context. Martin is an investor. He has had a huge career uh, in Silicon Valley, spending 20 years as the CEO of a company there called Trinet, um, but now has a great mission, a bigger mission that we're going to spend a lot of time talking about, um, which I suppose indirectly is more good jobs. And we're going to kind of talk about what that is, but there's a bigger piece behind that. So welcome to Scale Up Your Business today, Martin. Great to have you on the show. Glad to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Excellent. Let's kick off um, just for context. And, and so Scale Up Your Business listeners can understand a bit more about you. I mean, 20 years as a CEO, and there's a lot more I could have talked about, but I'm going to get you to kind of go through that now. Just take us through that, that journey, your professional career. Well, after college, I spent about 11 years working for the U.S. government and traveled around the world. And when I landed on my last assignment in the San Francisco Bay Area, um, no one would hire me because I had spent too much time working for the government. And in the U.S. anyway, there is this uh, bias against people that work for the government too long because then you're good for government use only. And after a couple of years of a frustrating job search. I then went out and started to spend more energy on saying, how could I take this career that I had made in human resources and create some kind of business around that experience? And it was a long journey, but I was very fortunate to have stumbled across what was then uh, the very beginnings in the late 1980s of the HR outsourcing industry and a particular model, which we have in the U.S. that is not found uh, so much elsewhere, which we aggregate a whole bunch of small to mid-sized companies into one group. And then using that idea of economies of scale, then have some platform advantages, purchase of insurances and other things that can be rationalized across a larger customer base. And that industry today is known as the professional employer organization or PEO industry in the United States. So we're one of the first companies that uh, helped make a go of it back when you couldn't use the words HR and outsourcing in the same sentence. No, well, that's that's pivoting back. I, I had a bit of experience in a couple of different HR businesses actually in, in private equity scale up quite recently. And one of the things that we talked about was uh, bringing the human back into HR. Yes. <laughs> yes. A whole different range of conversations, as you can imagine. Yeah. But in in essence, when we began, I'll say that it was a startup uh, in uh, we we look at it today in retrospect as a startup. But when I began, the idea was it was going to be a small business 
because I really didn't understand much about business models, wasn't thinking about trying to raise money from investors. I just wanted a small business and this was going to be able to put my skills to use. And it was only after being in the business a couple of years that I began to understand that the very nature of what we were doing, because it required scale. And by the way, we weren't successful in those first couple of years. It was a really, really dire situation that we went through the process of uh, rethinking what we're doing and um, decided to focus narrowly on the target market of emerging growth technology companies. And that's what really made the difference for us. Not only because uh, with a narrow target market, we were able to tailor the value proposition just to that target market. And um, that target market was selected really based on our figuring out this was the strongest value proposition we could deliver uh, for a select group of customers. But it brought me into the world of Silicon Valley since the customers that we were now focused on were those that were backed by private equity investors. And they had characteristics in terms of um, their challenges that in order for us to deliver what we were doing from Trinet's perspective, we had to understand the challenges of being on the management team uh, in these companies to help them with all of their human capital issues. And, and that was a defining decision that set the stage really for the next 20 years of the company. And to this day is still the largest chunk of our business at Trinet. Okay. Can I, I, just, I want to jump into that if I can, because you've said a couple of things there that comes, they come up as topics or characteristics quite a bit through people who reach out or, or come on the podcast actually talk about it. But that decision that you had to make to, to get narrow, you know, to get super focused, first and foremost, what was happening before that? And, and how did you decide that that was the audience that you were going to go for? When we began, it was with the idea of providing this service to any small business, and so I started on the part of um, finding customers right in my local community there in the San Francisco Bay Area and saying, I'm going to be the best professional employer organization in San Leandro, California, and went out and talked with small business owners, trying to encourage them to be customers. And it did not work. And I could look back in retrospect and understand all the reasons why it did not work. All right. Because these small business owners were not early adopters. Asking them to sign on something that required as much trust as the nature of what we're doing because we're responsible for the company's payroll, we're effectively a fiduciary and we get, we're a startup. There was just too much risk for them to consider it. And that is the reason after failing in that effort that I went through and just did a lot of research and a lot of thought around what's the right audience for this type of business. So I believed passionately in the nature of what we're doing to the extent that I wasn't ready to throw the business out, but I knew I was looking at the wrong customer market. So I, I went through an analysis. I've written a post on this on my blog, choosing your local market focus on babinick.com. And it describes yeah, the, I think on the that, different. Let's, uh, let's definitely link that to the show notes because this is, I mean, the reason I'm probing this so heavily is because it's such a common thing. Because lots of people sit there, I call it the death of the generalist. This idea that you can be everything to everybody as opposed to being, you know, really important to a smaller group. So we'll definitely link that into the show notes, but please continue. And 
after going through an analysis of what were the parts of our value proposition in which companies who had financial capacity would find some attraction to, then I went out on the street and started to learn how to get relationships built that would lead me to those customers. And that was another important lesson uh, that is powered even the development of the book, More Good Jobs, was at the time, little did I realize that I happened to be in the most entrepreneur supporting place on the planet. I was just a small business guy trying to not just eke out an existence, but trying to survive. I mean, the business was on the cusp of going out of business. And so um, it was through the good fortune of being in Silicon Valley and having all of my energies devoted to selling to Silicon Valley companies that I began to reap the benefits of a supportive community. And it wasn't until I relocated from Silicon Valley um, almost 20 years later, uh, well, pardon me, 12 years later, that I then began to understand how important that supportive community was. So let me give you an example. I'm out there looking around for customers. I'd walk into an event that would be a gathering of Silicon Valley entrepreneurs and investors and kind of the right kind of crowd. And I would run into somebody um, while I'm having a glass of wine uh, who happened to be um, an investor. And I would be describing what I'd be doing. And the investor would say, you know, that's interesting. I don't have a need for your services, but let me introduce you to Bob over here. Cause I think he, he's trying to hire a bunch of people on his team and maybe you can help him. That introduction by itself uh, is a situation in many other communities, especially in that era would not have taken place because here I just met the guy and known him less than five minutes. And for him to go out and introduce me to his friend and because he's an investor, he's a trusted source and introduce me to his friend and say, oh, well, you should talk to Martin because he's got a solution that could help with a problem that I know you have, Bob. That kind of support within the community was made all the difference for me as a startup entrepreneur to see that happen time after time again. And in many other communities, um, in areas where there are especially not a lot of what I'll call innovation economy companies, that are developing an innovation, bringing it to market, hopefully a national or a global market. And um, oftentimes in communities where there are not many of those companies, they can still embrace the ideas of the past where I'm not gonna introduce you to someone because I don't know you enough. I don't know you enough to trust you. Why would I risk my reputation in introducing you to someone who I do have a relationship with? So that ethos of what are the circumstances in which someone who is um, in a position to help an entrepreneur, um, when are they gonna do it and when are they not gonna do it, changes greatly by community. I happen to be a beneficiary of that in Silicon Valley. And what was it? I mean, cause I wanna ask about the, the importance of proximity, <laughs> particularly now, but what was it then? Was, was it basically that you were, because you were there, you were accepted to some extent, um, obviously you were building your network and building relationships and that therefore by default made it easier for you at that time? A lot of factors. So certainly um, 
when I began, we're talking even pre-internet as we know it today, not, no World Wide Web, okay? And so um, meeting people in person was even more important because you had fewer options to extend your reach globally as we have the luxury of today. But um, walking into a meeting uh, where I wouldn't know anybody in the room, the fact that um, I would be going to a meeting in Santa Clara and I was coming from San Leandro, which was a one and a half hour drive away, two very different places. We didn't think about it, the broader Silicon Valley as it is today. And um, in many other communities, if you're a stranger and you walk in and you start getting asked questions about, well, you know, why are you here? Because you're not from this area your acceptance can be uh, uh, questioned, all right? So the ethos of a Silicon Valley where um, there's an openness uh, to, it doesn't really matter where you came from. It doesn't matter where you went to school. It doesn't really even matter who you know. Let's talk about what you're doing. And if what you're doing is interesting, then you know maybe there's some ways we can work together or help each other. So there's that openness of sharing ideas and relationships that makes it an entrepreneur supporting environment. And many people think Silicon Valley is the greatest place to start and grow a business because that's where the money is. And I think the point that I'm trying to make and one that we go into much depth in the book, More Good Jobs, is that Silicon Valley is the most entrepreneur supporting place on the planet because of the culture. This is the overlooked piece that outsiders can't really appreciate unless they go in and start a company and then take advantage of how open and accessible relationships are. And also how entrepreneurs who are successful give back to that next generation and do what they can to help that next generation entrepreneur be successful, much more so uh, compared with communities that are um, talent exporting, taking their talent and waving goodbye to them as they, they leave. So I was the beneficiary of that. And as the company grew, I had the um, opportunity to relocate my family from uh, Silicon Valley to my hometown in upstate New York and did that uh, at the very height of the dot-com era when we were trying to take Trinet public in early 2000. And the plan was I would be doing a cross-country commute for a year and a half or so, and then hand the CEO reins over to someone else. Didn't quite work out that way. Um, I'm one of the few people that you'll meet that has actually been through the entire IPO process, uh, right up the pricing day, twice with the same company. So we failed in that first effort. Um, and uh, that's another story, but we'll... Uh, you have got a lot. Yeah, I must well, I'm going through your, your detailed kind of bio here as we're talking, and there's so many different things we could talk about that I'm going to keep us focused. <laughs> yeah, but, but my point here is that after I uh, aborted the IPO and then had to go through that painful rebuilding process, because um, as fast as we do throughout the, the 90s because of the dot-com wave, and we were by then a national company with uh, – places, all the places where you'd have lots of technology companies trying to had an office and, and we were growing, um, suddenly it was going in reverse. 
And the dot bomb, which was the 2000 to 2002 period in particular, was very painful. And we had a series of layoffs, but the company survived and I, I kept commuting. So I kept commuting until um, really uh, 2010, um, but I handed the CEO reins over in 2008. And the, over the course of the 10 years of commuting, I spent a lot of time thinking about my home region in upstate New York called the Mohawk Valley and the differences between the Mohawk Valley and Silicon Valley. And it was really the sharp contrast between how we had all these assets uh, in the upstate New York that based on my knowledge of how startups work, we should be creating tens of thousands of startups across upstate New York. And we weren't. And um, for me, that was a, um, something that was frustrating. And I, I pledged that Someday, if I had the time and the opportunity, I wanted to do something about, and that's what began the journey that led to mortgage jobs. Okay, great. All right, that's great context. So thank you for that. I want to delve into a few things here that you've just mentioned, if that's all right. So, I mean, Silicon Valley, you know, gets the brand. You know, it's kind of when people talk about entrepreneurship, whether it was the first or certainly whatever, it gets the most notoriety. But a connection of ours, Brad Feld, has you know works out of Boulder, and you've got places like that in the U.S., which seem to be emerging, as you call it, magnet cities. Um, in the UK, we've got Nottingham, which has become a tech hub, and there's a few other places like that. What is it about these, these areas? You said culture beforehand, but what is it about these areas that, that you know, become attractive for entrepreneurship and for businesses to, to sort of set up roots there? Well, I would consider Boulder, Colorado to be the uh, really inspiring example, not only for the US, but elsewhere in that um, when Brad Feld moved to Boulder in 1995, Boulder was a interesting small college town, a little bit of tech, not a huge amount, but nothing special. Venture capitalists certainly weren't traveling out there looking for the next big thing. And um, at that point in Trinet, the only kind of companies we were signing on were emerging tech companies. And when Brad Feld moved from uh, Cambridge, Massachusetts out to Boulder, I decided to open an office there just because he moved there. Because really? I believed <laughs> that Brad Feld would be a force of change. And it was, um, as a result, something that gave me a ringside seat for how the city of Boulder, uh, over the next 10 years, um, got on a track to become... Uh, trailing only Silicon Valley as the highest rate of venture capital per capita in the country. All right. So how do you go from a kind of nothing town to now being a place in the book we call magnet cities where talent leaves the cities where they can't find the opportunity and the best talent who has the capabilities and the interest to want to work in these newer industries and whose skills are in greatest demand, talent leaves these talent exporting cities and flocks to the magnet cities. And Boulder now being one of these magnet cities. So we have people who leave upstate New York and go out to Boulder to start their company, all right? So how did he do that? Uh, as you've had him on the show, I know it was a little bit of the topic of discussion uh, with Brad. Yeah. Uh, and. He, he helped create an environment in which he died uh, of like-minded entrepreneurs 
who, like him, felt there was a lot they could do to help that next generation of entrepreneurs in their community. And they did a lot of experiments and some worked and some didn't, but they kept iterating the build out of a community. And because I was watching the whole thing, I took a lot of notes and paid a lot of attention. And uh, you might say when we began the journey in upstate New York with the start of um, the nonprofit Upstate Venture Connect with that mission of helping entrepreneurs start and grow companies across our region. Uh, it was taking pages out of Brad Feld's playbook that allowed us to uh, have a track to run on, at least some ideas that we then customize for our situation. So what are the things that are important? Um, I mentioned earlier, the cultural aspects of getting people who are highly influential people, in the book we call them HIPs, highly influential people, how do you get those people off the sidelines, people that might not even be in the current generation of young technologists, but maybe they're experienced business people, maybe they're entrepreneurs, but they have a deep and abiding interest of trying to further their community. Maybe they have financial capacity and could be investors, but they sit on the sidelines because they don't know how to help. Uh, they don't know how to plug in. And they think that, hey, the stuff that's going on in the world of startups and emerging technology is stuff that I can't understand. That's for young people. And yet these highly influential people can contribute a lot to help a community go about a transition from being a talent exporting community to become eventually a magnet city. And so what we talk about in the book is to um, have that long-term vision of saying, we really wanna help entrepreneurs start and grow companies in these newer industries. And the way to do that is by having the largest tribe possible of supporters. And how can we get people attracted to wanna to participate on their terms on what things would make sense for them being involved with and uh, find ways to support that happening at scale. Okay. So what you've said there, just to paraphrase a bit of it, is first it takes some desire and ambition from an individual or set of individuals who want to make that happen. Um, and then there's also, from what you've said there, there is a degree of, particularly with someone like Brad and, and the community that he has helped support in Boulder, there's investment, therefore, for businesses to be attracted to it. So if you're a startup, whatever it is, doesn't have to be necessarily technology, but if you're a startup and you need to get close to investors and people who can add value to you and your journey, then that's that's the that's the piece. Those two things coming together makes quite a big difference in terms of what cities are then going to become these magnet cities. Yes, got it. And what and and for you, I mean, the question you said before about the, the city on the sidelines, or the point you made before about city on the sidelines. Do you think that there are too many people out there who could make a bigger contribution? Absolutely. And for whatever reason, they're not. Yes, there are people who have the interest, um, they have the capacity, uh, but they don't know how. And so that's part of the challenge for those who are trying to lead an effort to transform their community. It's about how can we unlock um, the interests and the capacity of people who could possibly help and get them engaged. And so uh, we try to concentrate on looking at the different audiences. Um, 
so what do I mean? So uh, highly influential people would be business leaders, corporate executives, um, even political people, economic development people, the people who have a following because they're, um, they're in leadership roles and they're respected. That's one category. Mm-hmm. There are also um, nonprofits uh, can be a contributing factor to be able to help grow startup communities as colleges and universities, higher education, we call it in the US. Um, there are government entities and economic development organizations. Um, there are corporations that could have an interest. So we go through and identify a list of possible stakeholders and the interest in getting um, not just organizations involved, um, but let's say one of my findings in the journey of doing this over 10 years is that instead of trying to concentrate on how to get an organization involved, we changed our strategy to concentrate on identifying people who had the right interest and focus our energy all around, how do I get that person? Because they show the attributes of having the interest in helping the next generation and are ready to do that on what we'll call a give first basis, all right? And and just as I mentioned in the early part of the interview, my being introduced by an experienced investor to an entrepreneur friend and have that as an opportunity for me to sell Trinet's services to that entrepreneur, that investor took a risk by making that introduction. The investor gave first without getting, without having any expectation of getting a return on it, all right? And that's a cultural aspect that needs to be built in communities where they could be resistant to do that for a lot of reasons. And so we would go out and identify who are the good for give first leaders that are displaying by their actions, they have these attributes and they are in positions of leadership that could have a reason to become involved um, professionally and then concentrate on how do we get introduced to that person and what are the right things that we could put down as ideas to get them interested that were appropriate for whatever their role and personal interests are. And doing that again and again and again over a number of years with an expanding tribe. So initially this effort was just me and my co-founder for Upstate Venture Connect, a nonprofit, Nasr Ali. But by doing this again and again and again over many different metro areas, staying true to this um, approach over time, you know, we've built a very large network, a network that today across upstate New York uh, numbers more than 16,000 people and covers seven distinct um, metro areas. So it's, it's a very large geography, uh, not only broadly dispersed, but um, a lot of institutional silos and getting leaders to think about going outside whatever their defined constituency is. If you're in a college, colleges have a tendency to concentrate only on their alumni and their students and their faculty and really get too involved, uh, not involved as much as they could in supporting the local community because they're really 
maniacally focused only on their students, alumni, and faculty. All right. So um, getting leaders that show the attributes of give first, wanting to help a different, make a difference in their community, and they're already showing that uh, through their actions, getting them engaged and finding the right pathways for them to be engaged has been what our journey of mortgage jobs is all about. Okay. So I want to jump back a little bit to what I asked um, when we first started talking today, Martin, about proximity. Because I, I get, obviously, back in 1988, there was no other option. <laughs> you know, there was the, the beer and the wine meeting down the local, whatever it was, networking event. But these days, you've got a lot of change. I mean, here in the UK, as we're talking now, we've gone into a second period of lockdown. No one can leave their houses pretty much for the next four weeks, possibly up to Christmas. And, and people are kind of having to create networks, create trust, build rapport more virtually necessarily being in a close proximity so what's your thoughts on that because obviously a lot of what you're talking about here is it feels to me like it is about people being together in these communities actually physically there's no question the pandemic is sea change in how we look at um doing what we need to do with the limitations that we have and it has a plus and a minus because it's certainly extended our reach um to people that maybe uh, would have been harder for us to get to, but I will still maintain that the uh, most important relationships that we are going to um, develop are first going to come to us through one of two traditional ways. Uh, we either have a creative collision of some kind where we happen to be in the right place at the right time. And even in this virtual settings that we are now, tools are starting to develop that are making it possible for during events, um, having attendees connect with each other that had no prior interaction. So they, it's something we experiment with even in what we're doing with Upstate Venture Connect. So anyway, one of two mechanisms uh, are responsible for starting um, new relationships um, and having a creative collision is the first. And the second is having a referral by trusted source. Uh, and while it's true, there are new mechanisms that are developing rapidly on how we might get new relationships started because of an online connection. Um, and that's definitely rising up. If we think back of what are our most significant relationships that we have in our life right now, and how did, uh, how can we trace back, um, how that relationship began? I'll venture to guess that for most of us, um, the most significant relationships can still be traced back to um, their original roots of creative collision or referral by trusted source. So we tend to think about from a, um, an organization standpoint, Upstate Venture Connect, on how do we build startup community when we want to engage more people. It's looking at it through the lens of how can we scale up both the volume and the quality of creative collision and referral by trusted source. Get the right people into the room, and that room these days can even be virtual. Make it easy and inviting for them to connect with people that are the right people, so you can have more of those creative collisions. And then also to develop mechanisms in which people who are in the network can more easily connect and refer as a trusted source to help these entrepreneurs start and build their companies. 
So does that make it less about the concept of the magnet city and more about the culture? Well, I would say that culture is easiest to influence in the smaller environment. All right. So you might say, if you're only working on trying to change culture, can concentrate on doing it in just a single city, as Brad has done in Boulder. Well, he started in Boulder and then has expanded it over uh, the state of Colorado. Um, but the it, the ease at which you can influence culture, uh, from my perspective, has a lot to do with how you define the environment. And the more broadly dispersed the environment, the harder it is to change the culture. So you begin with a community. And in our case, across upstate New York, we have seven different metro areas. So we've got experiments running in all seven actually uh, and trying to start up community within a distinct metro area. But importantly, how can we connect the resources across those seven metro areas so that someone who's starting a company in Rochester, New York, that might have a need for a specialized resource in cybersecurity, for example. Um, and there are terrific resources related to cybersecurity and um, defense uh, right in Syracuse and Utica, not far away. What we work at is making it easier for those people across those cities to actually find each other because there is a defined interest they have in this example with uh, an industry sector. And to be able to do that across multiple industry sectors and across multiple metro areas, that's harder to do than to just say, we're gonna make sure we create a great startup community just in our community and concentrate on just helping entrepreneurs in our community. In upstate New York's case, these metro areas are not large. They're not, they're not big like Boston or New York City or Washington, DC. I mean, those are large metro areas with a lot of resources and being able to collapse the, um, the resources that are related to the startup community into manageable networks when uh, geographic proximity does matter, all right, it's easier to do it in a large metro area than it is a small metro area that won't have as much depth of what resources might be needed because it's just they just don't have the scale. But if you take all of those resources, in our case, across our region, you put them all together, there's a lot of resources. The trick is, can you reduce the friction involved to get people connected? And also, and also there's a bit of a pull. As, as you know, to your to your terminology of magnet about why would someone, why would someone you know a decade ago or fifteen years ago thought that they were going to pack up their bag in yep. you know Boston or Cambridge, Massachusetts, let's say, and then go to Boulder, <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> and the same thing as you're talking, I'm thinking about upstate New York. We just saw a fantastic picture of your of your hometown, so to speak, or home city, and you and you kind of think actually, other than just the fact that Bradfield loves to run in the mountains of Colorado there's got to be some other things that draw people there. And one of the things I've found, I just want to kind of reflect a little bit on your point around the community and the, and the values is that, you know, if you can create a tribe effect, if you can create, you know, people who come together with similar sets of values, standards, ideologies, then that in itself can be an attractor. That can be something. And, and the thing I'm thinking about is as people listening to this, who may be thinking, how can I do this in my community? It's less really about the community in terms of the landmass but it's about the people who come together in that place. Yes. 
And that's the challenge of people that want to bring about change. And that's what we talk about in the book. If you are a leader in that community and say, I'm tired of waving goodbye to the next generation talent. They're leaving our community to go to these magnet cities. And I want to do something about it. Our goal in the book is to give them a menu of choices so that they can understand there are things that can be done, but it begins with that idea of building a tribe and finding some more people who share the passion for bringing about that change and putting that on a course where those values of pay it forward and um, you know, not expecting to get something in return, good things are gonna happen uh, and we're gonna have fun doing it. Uh, we're gonna have fun in ways that are sometimes not understood or appreciated. So I, I'll segue a little bit over to the investing side because I know that's another thing that you are uh, very knowledgeable about and your audience includes a lot of investors. And we think about people who are financially capable and they could invest as angels, for example, in these companies and they oftentimes don't. Um, and they have a lot of reasons for it as we talk about in the book. Um, they have financial advisors that say, hey, investing in startups is the stupidest thing you could do with your money. You know, here, you've made all this wealth and uh, you invest in a startup, it's not liquid, all right? You can't do anything about it. You can't control what they're gonna do. You might as well just write off every dollar you get that you put in there. And, and so they have um, their financial advisors telling them they can't do it. Um, they look around their talent exporting community and they don't see evidence of any local investors being successful investing in startups. So that's another reason, okay? And then if they were to explain to their friends that they invested, their friends would say, what do you mean you invested in that? that that's a thing to be doing, all right? So they have a lot of reasons not to do it and to change the thought process around, um, this is not gambling. It's not like going to Las Vegas. There are ways that you can thoughtfully band together with some other like-minded community leaders who have financial capacity, might wanna help startups. Um, you don't have to do it all on your own. In fact, we would argue that being a wild angel investor and putting a lot of dollars in one company is probably not a good idea. But if you pool a bunch of like-minded people into a small fund, and then work together in that startup fund, it's not just your dollars that uh, make the difference in helping some of these companies get off the ground, but importantly, a band of local investors that pool their money into a fund become a force for touching many companies, including companies that they don't even fund. Their relationships get started and it's, a, it's an important strategy to get more of these people off the sidelines into the game of helping the community. And invariably, they have fun doing it. They go into it thinking, well, I don't know much about emerging technology. I don't even understand what's going on with some of the things my kids and grandkids are talking about, all right? But as a result of their participating in a fund, suddenly a new world opens up for them. And they start to learn about things that up to that point in time, they didn't have much knowledge about. And their interest level rises. And then they're out there telling other people, you should be doing this too. So 
That's just from the investor side, but it's an important one because in talent exporting communities, the big gap in the capital stack is at seed and series A. When companies do get successful enough in these innovations they are building, if they get successful enough to qualify for a series B or later, that capital is pretty mobile. But when you are really small, you might be able to get some angels to get that first 100,000 to 150,000 US in. But from there up to maybe a series A at that three to five million, that's the big gap that's hard to fill. And we go through in the book in chapter seven and going through a number of different approaches to fill that particular gap in the capital stack. Here in the UK, there are um, government incentives that do help that, um, schemes like SEIS, as they call it here. And interestingly, as you're talking, there's a, I live, as we, were, as we were mentioning previously, I live in a little country town, not very far away, about seven miles away. There is a, um, a group of uh, entrepreneurs, actually successful business leaders who have sold their companies. And they've started a group called Hatch Ventures. And they're doing exactly what you've said. Now, this, this little town has 30,000 people in it but they are an incubator, if you like, for investment for people in the area who want to be able to invest in startups. One thing that's interesting, though, because I support this um, wholeheartedly, is you find that sometimes people, just because they've been successful in business and they've sold their companies for tens, if not hundreds of millions, they then think they can become really good investors. What's your thought on that? And, and what's your experience, I suppose, in that? And, and do you have any advice for people who are, who are thinking that way? Well, I've, I'm an investor myself, so I've been on this journey, all right? And it's like everything else we do, we go into it with certain ambition and we think this is how it's going to work. And it's not till we make mistakes and learn from those mistakes that we can look back and say, all right, if I had to do this again, what would I do different? Uh, so I've probably been an investor yeah, for, call it 10 years. I've been doing some level of angel investing. Uh, certainly the last five years in particular, I've stepped it up and now building a small team. And um, my approach to investing today is very different than it was when I started 10 years ago. All right. So uh, among other things, I fell victim to a little bit of entrepreneur supporting bias because I'm an entrepreneur. I, I would be swayed by the passion of some entrepreneurs and I did not invest much energy, not sufficient energy, towards the due diligence side of it, all right? And I would be investing in the entrepreneur because we all know how important uh, the bet on the jockey is, all right? And if I believe that entrepreneur had the right stuff. And even if it wasn't a product or a service that I understood fully, then my confidence in the jockey was carried through. I no longer look at it. I mean, those are important things, don't get me wrong. But um, now over the, especially the last five years, I've invested a lot more in learning how institutional investors go through the process of examining investments and have incorporated that into the angel investing that I do. So while I'm not responsible for managing other people's money, I apply the principles of examining investments, having themes for the investing that we do, and having a very defined process of what we look at uh, before we actually make an investment as an angel investor. And I encourage other investors to do the same, but you almost have to make some mistakes uh, 
to really get softened up and realize, hey, no matter how much confidence I had as an investor and I could, you know, or as an entrepreneur, I had all this success. So I'm going to parlay that into making uh, magical picks right out of the starting gate. You know, my advice is spread it out and look at it from a portfolio perspective and plan on taking many small bets and nurturing them and seeing what happens so that you can develop a pattern recognition on what does a successful investment look like. You're, you're going to have more misses than successes. There's a lot of risk in this. But some of the people that you might invest in uh, in the first go around, um, maybe the company doesn't work out. You might develop a relationship with an entrepreneur that then comes back with another idea. And even though they failed on the first one, you might say, all right, that wasn't business, but it was the right entrepreneur with a different business. It might be worth another at bat. So, you know, these things are, are all, they're learned through experience more so than you can instantly translate entrepreneurial success to investing success. Yeah. Well, the other, the other thing to say is even even the ones who have been doing it for some time, back to my sort of private, private equity roots, they don't get it right either. <laughs> but it is about, it's about trying and it's about, you know, having faith in, in, this, in what's happening and being brave. But I mean, ultimately speaking, you're right. You know, it's, 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 you're not going to get hundred percent right all the time. And I've, I've worked with businesses that have had sort of five to seven pivots, if you want to call it that, you know, the first idea looked good on paper, but didn't work. But all of a sudden, you know, after a bit of time, they've managed to get it congruent, similar to what you were saying, actually, you know, in terms of where you got your company trying it to start to really fly. It's a journey and uh, <laughs> very, very few companies uh, are going to make money on what the original starting idea was. There's going to yeah. be a number of pivots, you know, that which you began, <laughs> what you initially invested in is not what you make the money on. I love that. All right. Well, listen, you know, your, your book has got so many different areas to it. As we've been talking, I've been going through every section and every chapter, <laughs> looking at the various parts to it. I'm going to suggest that people have a look at the book. Um, and I'm going to start uh, sort of to circle back to the, the question you probably would have expected me to ask at the very beginning, but I'm going to ask it now at the very end. What is a good job? Well, a good job is one that is not only viewed as good from the eye of an incumbent. So we think that's the easy part. You think people want to be paid well, they want great benefits, they want to work in an environment in which they're respected by their management team, they want to work with peers that they respect. And the, the idea of looking at a job through the lens of the incumbent is an easy thing. What we talk about in the book is also good jobs are good for the community. And if you step back and ask yourself, well, what attributes of a job are good for the community? We'd point out that if the job is paid a lot, that actually cycles a lot of money into the community. And I would point out that, by the way, um, in um, innovation economy companies that we profile in the book, companies that have been started based on an innovation are selling to a national or global audience or have an ambition to do that, for every one job that that kind of company creates, five jobs are created in the community. That's based on research done by Enrico Moretti from his book, New Geography of Jobs. And so think of the job multiplier effect as a result of having more innovation economy companies, you are then creating more jobs in the community, even outside that sphere of startups. Um, good jobs are also ones that help more people to the community. 
Think of the concept of magnet cities that we've talked about here. If you had tons of innovation economy companies starting in your community, it's attracting talent because the talent who has skills necessary to work in these innovation economy companies, they want to hang out with other people who look like them. So if you've created a lot of jobs in this category, you increase the odds of being on path to become a magnet city. So those are attributes of we would consider to be good jobs and we all want more of them. And now the challenge is how do we do that? So yeah. I hope that you'll be able to read the book. And for starters, you can visit the website, moregoodjobs.org, request a free chapter and join our community. We have an online community that we hope will link up people interested with these themes and interact with each other, support each other so that we can have more startup communities going all over the world. Great. And if there's someone who you designate here, a highly influential person in a community who's listening to this today and they want to reach out to you directly, Martin, are you happy for them to do so? Absolutely. And they can do that through the website or they can email me directly, martin at babinick.com. Okay, excellent. This has been a really interesting conversation today because I think sometimes, you know, we talk a lot about the journey of the business and we talk about the entrepreneur, but not necessarily about the greater impact that can be made from this, this journey, as you call it. So it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you, Martin. Have you got any final bits of advice for entrepreneurs as they face the challenges that we're going through? We are in the midst of COVID as we record this. And I always like to ask successful entrepreneurs and investors what they would be doing and what advice they can give for others. So we'll, we'll finish today with that, if that's okay. The most important thing for entrepreneurs that are obsessed with solving the problem that caused them to start the business in the first place, beyond never giving up, which is rule number one, is listen to the customer. Because during these times in which there are lots of challenges, it's not only challenge for the company trying to survive that the entrepreneur is building, but the customers that company is serving is also having challenges. So I've written a whole series on wartime leadership, which is effectively about leading startups during COVID. And that is very much a theme throughout it is as much as we worry about our own companies, we gotta be thinking hard about how do we get the information we need from our customers? How do we make sure we got the right people on the team? How do we make sure that we're sufficiently conservative in our projections when there's so much uncertainty on how long this is going to last and what's happening that are in the environment that we don't have control over? And as CEOs of the company, we have to be stewards of those resources. And the important thing during wartime is we have one mission, and that is to survive. Love it. Martin Babinick, it's been fabulous having you on Scale Up Your Business. Thank you for being so gracious with your time. Well, thank you for having me. It was a lot of fun. I appreciate it. 